hey, what kind of return do you really need from your investments to make your financial plan work? You just call that a required return. We can measure that. It's mathematical. It's not qualitative. It's not saying, well, I need a conservative portfolio or I need an aggressive portfolio to make my plan work. No, we'll use a number. What kind of net return do we need to make the financial plan work? Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. Glad you're with us today. This is Retire Smarter. Walter Storholt with you alongside Kevin Krosky of True Wealth Design. Kevin's the president and wealth advisor there, serving you all throughout Northeast Ohio, Southwest Florida, and in the greater Pittsburgh area. Go online to truewealthdesign.com and click on the Are We Right For You button to schedule a 15-minute call with an experienced advisor on the True Wealth team if you have any questions about what we talk about today. Kevin, good to talk to you once again. How are you? Walter, it is always my pleasure. It's uh, your your intro. I got to tell you, it's I just got pumped up hearing it. So thank you for oh, that. Oh, good. I'll, I can do it in, uh, okay, next show, remind me, I'll do it in like true, just for something different. I'll go back to my sports broadcasting and PA announcer days. And uh, we can do, I used to do softball PA announcing in college and I got really into it. So <laughs> I'll pump you up like you're walking up to the plate. All right, I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm in I'm not in my home studio today solo. I'm in the office, so I don't want to disturb everybody else in the <laughs> office. Uh, so we'll we'll wait till I'm back in the home studio where it's just me, and you know I don't have to worry about anybody giving me funny looks. <laughs> Very good. Well, we've got a fun show on the way today because we're going to be talking about one of these financial terms that's you know you often will hear maybe other advisors or financial planners kind of talk about. Maybe you've seen at least the talk of risk in the news in some way, shape, or form. And then I guess the buzzword technically, I guess, Kevin, is risk tolerance, but kind of goes in one ear, out the other, not really sure, you know, sometimes if that really lands with people or if people really absorb what that means or what the impact of it is to a financial plan. So I know you're going to break this down in a u- unique way that uh, is, is different from the way other people talk about this topic. So take us down the, the slope of risk tolerance and what that means to you as a planner and what it should mean to us as listeners and folks trying to prepare for our financial future. You know, great setup, Walter. Um, yeah, I was on a, um, so for certified financial planners uh, and other professional uh, designations like that, you have to do ongoing education, continuing education, whether you're an attorney, CPA, CFP, what have you. And um, I participated in an hour-long course yesterday on on risk and you know, these risk tolerance, I'll call it broadly. And it, it, one, it was well done. Um, but two, I was like, well, hey, I'll kind of, um, the old saying, kill two birds here. Not only will I participate, but I'll kind of, I'll use this as uh, something I can share on the podcast and talk about because it applies to everybody that you work with. You you have to you know understand somebody and and kind of gauge their risk preferences, if you will, and, and we'll explore that uh, and maybe some different views on what that really means. But it's something. Anytime somebody sits in our conference room or we have a conversation with them, it's always something that we ask or you know we'll look into. We've talked about it on prior episodes how to measure it mathematically and uh, and some of those things, but this is a little bit different the way that I think about it. We've talked about it a lot, but we've never dedicated some time specifically to it. So that's what I thought we would do today. And when we have somebody that's talking with us, uh, it could be the first time or, or first few times. Uh, we really try to 
get people out of thinking about it this way, but we'll just ask them, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. And uh, they'll often use these qualitative terms when they talk about the type of uh, investor they are. They'll say, well, I'm a conservative investor. You know, I'm a moderately aggressive investor. I don't think I've ever heard somebody say I'm an aggressive investor, but um, in a conversation like that. But nonetheless, these are all qualitative terms. There's no objective way to kind of measure, well, what conservative is to you, Walter, may be different to what conservative is to me and vice versa. But this is traditionally, I think, how people at least think of it. They use an adjective. They don't use um, any sort of defined metric or mathematical way to measure this or anything of the sort. And and that's, uh, to me, I mean, it just, even though (laughs) advisors will often use these terms too, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, it's very good. Certainly, you don't want to start here anyway. Um, so that's kind of a, what I would call the client view. They'll just kind of use these broad terms, conservative, moderate, aggressive, something of the sort. And then it may, you probably have gone through these uh, risk tolerance questionnaires, whether that was maybe for a 401k plan that you participate in or with a financial advisor that you worked with. And, and here it's a little bit more detailed, uh, not much, but it, it'll go into, well, hey, how much time horizon do you have? Or when are you going to need this money? You know, how long can you remain invested? You know, do you need income, you know, from the investment right now? Um, what other investments or do you have? Uh, what other availability of assets do you have? What's your knowledge or your experience with investing? Are you uh, willing to stay disciplined in down markets? So maybe there's going to be some questions there about, hey, what would you do if you saw your account go down by 20%? You know, would you become more conservative? Would you stay invested? Things along those lines. All of those sorts of questions, and they could be just a handful, could be maybe 10 to 20, but they're all assigned some value and scored. And then it comes up with a number, and that number supposedly states what somebody's you know risk tolerance is. So it's a little bit better than the client view. It's still, in my opinion, falls quite short. And I think a lot of this is really done by financial advisors or financial firms as more of a CYA. Walter, do you know the phrase CYA? Yes, cover your something. Cover your something, yeah. Cover your assets or (laughs) or even abridge that third word a a bit. (laughs) But um, we just had this recently with a client that – Basically, we utilize, and I'm not a big fan of annuities, but they had some annuity money already, and we were able to move them into a lower cost, no commission uh, annuity. And all of these insurance companies are difficult to work with, um, <laughs> and they all have you know these conflicts of interest with the commissions. And you know, if you really want my take on on annuities and how they're misused, you know, just go back in, in the podcast archives and go into it. But Nonetheless, we were we were in this environment where we had to go through one of these questionnaires, and I'm just reading this thing, and it, and it was a lot of those things: time horizon, need for income, what other assets do you have, so on and so forth. And it's, I mean, it was just BS. <laughs> in my view, I'm like, this just makes no sense. Um, there's really no value here. This is purely or almost entirely in that CYA category, and unfortunately, you know, that's kind of where it's evolved to, but. When you have uh, misaligned incentives and, and, you know, I think financial advisors generally are good, well-meaning people, but just like any group of people, there's always going to be some bad actors. And when you have misaligned incentives like high commissions on annuities, things are going to get missold. And then you end up with these sorts of questions to basically CYA 
and and say, well, hey, it was suitable uh, for you know for Joe and Jane to go ahead and buy this, that sort of thing. So the client view again is just kind of using those more qualitative terms, whether it's conservative, moderate, aggressive, things along those lines. Then it, it maybe evolved at some point, probably as a result of some court cases, to this more traditional view of you know, hey, time horizon, do you need income, what other assets do you have available, so on and so forth. And uh, to me. I mean, it just didn't make sense. It, it never made sense to me. And I never used those questionnaires as long as I've been in business. The way that we kind of evolved to, and somewhat coincidentally, because I, I don't recall this really being in the CFP curriculum, hey, this is the way that you do it. But the gentleman who I was taking the continuing education class from, and I really have parallel views on, on how to do this. Um, I certainly got some things out of it that were a little bit new, and I'll talk about that. But, um, but basically, you know, it started, uh, I'll call it uh, you know, our way or the true wealth way. And um, certainly it starts with a financial plan. You know, most of our clients tend to hire us when they get serious about retirement. They tend to be in their 50s and have a few years left. You know, certainly the sooner the better, but just pragmatically, that's, that's looking back over the years, and that's when people tend to hire us. We construct their financial plan. You know, we really measure their spending, making sure that we're going through any sort of you know, goals that they have that maybe are different from their current lifestyle, modeling that into the retirement goals, assigning you know, different values for those goals, not just in terms of you know, how much is it going to cost, but what is a need? Maybe what's a little bit more of a discretionary want, and then you know, things go really well. Hey, I, you know, I wish I could also do this sort of thing. So you're kind of prioritizing those goals based on those needs, wants, and wishes thinking through pension, Social Security, making smart decisions there, looking at your investments and making sure they're well aligned back to the financial plan and to support your lifestyle goals, and then being tax smart and kind of overlaying that into the whole plan and just making sure that you're just paying no more than your fair share and making your money last longer. So that's the planning process. But after you have that, part of that investment step is really kind of what we're going to talk about today as it relates to risk and investments. It's, hey, what kind of return do you really need from your investments to make your financial plan work? We just call that a required return. We can measure that. It's mathematical. It's not qualitative. It's not saying, well, I need a conservative portfolio or I need an aggressive portfolio to make my plan work. No, we'll use a number. What kind of net return do we need to make the financial plan work? So we call that required return. It's determined by the financial plan that we have to do first. You know, it's kind of part of that planning process. So after we have that, we go into risk capacity. And again, this is um, it's kind of measuring your financial capacity or your ability to take risk. Again, I can think of this and we do this in mathematical terms. And the way that I would maybe rephrase it or relate it to somebody's retirement plan is, you know, how much lifestyle risk do you have or goal risk? You know, meaning that, you know, if you for some clients, if they don't take a certain level of risk, you know, if they just kept everything in cash, their financial plan is not going to work. Because, Walter, what's cash paying these days? Uh, point something. Point something. <laughs> Good answer. Yes. Very low. Um, so if they need, a, say, maybe a 3 or 4% net return to make their financial plan work over time, then cash isn't going to cut it. Um, on the other hand, you know, if they've done really well and live really below their means – um, maybe they can keep it in cash or they can be very aggressive in a diversified fashion. It's, they have a lot of capacity in that second example. But I, I think of it as, you know, what's the risk you're going to have to make a change to your lifestyle? What's the risk you're not going to be able to meet 
some of your goals. And again, using the goals are we have some clients that, you know, they just really want to continue their lifestyle into retirement. Others really want to increase it. And now that they have more time, they want to do more and travel more and spend more and, and have a second home in Florida and, you know, help out their grandkids and things along those lines. Uh, so it's really that risk capacity is, you know, what's the likelihood that you're going to have to make a change, you know, and kind of pull back from your lifestyle. That's the way I prefer to explain it to clients to rethink this. It's really measuring your financial capacity to take risk, but plain spoken, it's really what's the likelihood that you would have to make a change and pull back from your spending and maybe not meet some of those lifestyle goals that you have. So you're really trying to take out some of the subjectiveness of the risk conversation and and just really view it more objectively. Like it doesn't really matter to you if somebody comes in and says, ooh, I don't like taking a lot of risk or, oh yeah, let's be really aggressive just because I like taking the risks. You're, You're like, we're asking the questions in the wrong order here. It doesn't really matter how you feel about risk. The plan's going to tell us what we need to do. Then, sure, maybe we can have a little conversation about where the emotions play a role, but you're trying to diminish the, the role that emotions play here? You got it right. It, quite perceptive of you. I mean, it, it's really starting out with those objective measurements that we're measuring from the financial plan. And then, you know, not that it's unimportant, but then we can go into the qualitative questions about risk, you know, what we maybe call risk tolerance or your risk attitude. And, and then there's different ways we can measure that. One is through conversations, trying to go back on past experience. You know, how did you behave, you know, when uh, 2008 happened and the stock market sold off by 50%? What did you do in March of, you know, 2020 when we had the pandemic and everything was shut down and the market fell by about a third in three weeks? You know, how did you respond? So we can we can go back and look to certain extreme events like that and see how somebody responded. And that's okay. But the problem with just those conversations, you know, it's one, the person asking the questions can influence uh, the, the responses depending on how you ask the question. So you have to really be smart about how you're asking those questions and you can be smart, but unintentionally influence um, nonetheless. Uh, maybe things are different for that person. Maybe they were you know, working and they were only in their 40s in 2008 and really didn't pay much attention to their investments because they knew they're going to be working for another two decades or so. And uh, but now when COVID happened, you know, they're paying much more closer attention, one, because they have more dollars they're closer to what they perceive as kind of the retirement finish line, so to say. And it's just a different situation for them. Um, so it, it's kind of dynamic, but the, um, the conversational aspect is important, I think, but um, it's problematic. So another way to measure that, that risk attitude, there, there are other ways. And there's, I'm not aware of many good ways, but the same sort of way that you would measure somebody's personality and taking a personality profile or think of Myers-Briggs or something along those lines. You know, you can have a psychometric test where you have, you know, a valid, reliable test and, and really a score, if you will. You've kind of tested the test to make sure, you know, it, it's really kind of testing what you're hoping to. And then uh, what studies have shown, there was a company called uh, Finometrica out of Australia that was purchased by Morningstar that was really the pioneer in this field in terms of using a psychometric test for, for risk. And, uh, and so they have a lot of good data, not just from, Australia, but from the UK, from the US, and and we can use those sorts of tests to go ahead and, and get more so towards this attitude. Um, but but nonetheless, you still need to start, in my view, and, and also you know the 
the class that I was on yesterday and in his view as well with the financial plan, with the mathematical, with the objective, you know, what is somebody's required return? And again, that's a bit of an oversimplification. Returns are not achieved year in, year out. The order of returns in retirement matters a great deal. It's a little bit, it's a bit of a simplification uh, just for discussion purposes, but nonetheless, it's important. And then the risk capacity and going through that and then thirdly, you're getting into more of the qualitative, more of this attitudinal sort of approach to risk. What are some of the ways that you know they've experienced risk in the past? And maybe if, even if we can utilize a psychometric test that is valid, that is reliable, to go ahead and objectively measure this and, and get some value there. And importantly, too, you, you know, Walter, you think about you and your wife, um, I think about my wife and I, I mean, both spouses may be different. You may have one spouse that's really comfortable with risk and the other one that's not. And you have to reconcile that in some way. But um, these are the things, you know, that we'll call it, again, the true wealth way. But it's really starting with those mathematical and the objective emanating from the well-constructed financial plan and then then going into more of the qualitative, attitudinal, talking about risk, you know, some of the past experiences, and maybe even going into that psychometric testing that I mentioned such a key difference because I think it's the opposite in maybe traditional, if we can you know, use that word, uh, financial or retirement planning is to kind of sit down somebody right off the bat and say, okay, here's this questionnaire or, you know, fill this out. And then this, this starts dictating the plan and you're, you're flipping it over completely to approach it from a totally different way. Or, and we've, I think it's been some time, but one of our retirement rules gone awry was, well, hey, I mean, you don't even need a questionnaire. All you have to do is take a hundred, subtract your age from it, and that's how much you should have in stocks. <laughs> I mean, and it's how, like, that almost seems more objective, right? But then we're getting a little too simplistic, right? Yeah. I mean, Uncle Albert said something to the effect of, you know, things should be as simple as they can be, but not simpler. I mean, you come up with some pretty... Uh, asinine rules like that. Um, that that may work for somebody, but only by pure coincidence. That was the uh, retirement rules gone awry series that we had way back at the beginning. Kevin, uh, episodes like five through ten, I think was uh, was that series. So if anybody wants to go check those out, it was somewhere back in that period of time. Uh, we- you you got to just give me a little grace if you listen to the early podcasts. I think. Um, I think I've uh, improved a lot yes. from just saying some, <laughs> removing the ands or the, <laughs> you knows and things along those lines. But um, well, we record now at seven a.m. We used to record at four thirty in the morning, so you know you got to give you a little, <laughs> little little break and a little credit that early in the morning. Thank you, Walter. By the way, specifically, it was episode six. I, I just looked it up, so that was the rule of one hundred conversation there. Yeah, and we still hear that all the time sure. um, from from people. Um, it's it's just out there, and again, it's it's definitely an oversimplification. But um, I'll give you two examples uh, of this uh, for clients. And I'll kind of use the typical Jane and John. So Jane, Jane was a widow, uh, is a widow, excuse me. Um, her husband passed uh, a little bit more than a decade ago. You know, he handled the finances. He worked uh, at First Energy and uh, a major utility company here in Ohio. Somewhat of ill repute these days was the scandal that's been uh, we've been entoiled in. Uh, but he worked in the finance department. He handled the personal finances. Um, Jane, you know, after he unexpectedly passed from cancer, was forced to take over all of this. And um, if anybody 
I'm sure a lot of people can envision someone like Jane that I'm, I'm referring to right now. And it's not an easy transition. I mean, you're going through a grieving process and now you have all this additional responsibility on it as well. Um, they didn't have an advisor. Her kids were still fairly young, so they really weren't there to help that much at the time. Um, but we started working with her and I've uh, been working with her ever since. But, um, you know, Jane has a lot of risk capacity. Her income, you know, from his pension, from First Energy, from her Social Security benefit is greater than what she spends every month. So it's pretty simple. You know, hey, I got more income coming in from those two guaranteed sources than what I'm spending. You know, I can meet my bills. I can do the things that I want to do, so on and so forth. But she also has about a million and a half dollars. It's, you know, saved up and invested and saved and what have you. So if you look at that, um, you know, when your income's more than what you're spending and you have a million and a half dollars to boot, you have a very low required return. And, and that's exactly the case for Jane. So she has a very low required return and she has a very high risk capacity. She can afford to take a lot of risk because her income's greater than her spend and she has a lot of additional savings and investments. But she has a very low risk tolerance or, uh, you know, her attitude towards risk is, is not, it's more of a, a fear based one to a certain degree. Another way to frame that and something I got from the class yesterday was her perception of risk is quite high. So in working with her over the years, um, you know, we just tried to find solutions that worked for her, both from a financial standpoint, as well as from, you know, her attitudinal or emotional standpoint. And some of this was, um, it's worked out really well and she's really happy. I'm really happy that she's happy and, and that things have worked out as well as they have over time. But, you know, with interest rates being as low as they are today, you know, point whatever you're getting on your cash, as you said, Walter, it's tough to be a conservative investor, uh, tough to be a fixed income investor, if you will, and, and really have a decent return. So you know, balancing you know, maybe what may be financially optimal versus what she is comfortable with, particularly in a world of low interest rates, is challenging. And it's challenging for anybody that's more, quote unquote, conservative investor. But, you know, we've done some things over the years that have met, you know, her needs and maybe they, they aren't optimal financially. Um, maybe she could have had higher returns, but for her, for who she is and for her emotional and attitudinal beliefs, they were more optimal for her. Said another way, we got to be pragmatic here. Even though we need to start with a mathematical and measure it, we can't just do that in a vacuum. We do have to consider, you know, who the people are. And if you have a great plan, but you can't live with it, we well, don't have a very good plan. Uh, and you need to go back to the drawing board. I think these are great illustrations, Kevin, of uh, the different ways that you can have these risk discussions and probably highlights another point like this. Everyone's going to be different based on what their plan dictates and tells you and then kind of diverges from there, just like everything else. All, all of these inputs that go into the planning process, you know, risk and uh, that different uh, what was the word risk capacity varies from person to person. And that's got to be something that you have to be sort of nimble about and adjust and change as each new person walks through the door. It's a planning uh, ING. It's, uh, it's an ongoing process uh, for sure. This is something that we do year in and year out for people. You know, if um, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but you know, it, we've talked about expected returns. We just talk, did an episode um, a couple episodes ago um, talking about return expectations and how in general, they're lower, but um, not only lower for stocks, but also they're lower for bonds. Um, so it, a lot of things said another way are, are fairly expensive right now. But 
you know, there's still likely uh, some reasonable compensation for taking risk, for taking, for prioritizing stock-based investments over more conservative bond-based ones or over cash. So that's always a moving target. And so we're working through that and kind of going through somebody's financial plan and redoing their required return, you know, re-stress testing their plan, measuring their risk capacity. What's the likelihood that they may have to change their lifestyle goals, you know, things along those lines. Um, you're always kind of, you're doing that, but then you're putting in a framework of really, you know, what are we likely to get compensated for taking risks? So it, it's always an evolving and ongoing thing. And I mean, there's, there's a little bit more to it than, and even what we just touched on today, but um, but it's I think it's just important um, to keep that in mind. I'll give you another example. You know, somebody a little bit different from Jane, and uh, of course we'll call him John. But um, so John and his wife uh, recently retired, just retired in uh, last year, late last year in 2020. You know, around 700, 750 thousand or so saved up in the IRA, uh, no pension, uh, both have Social Security benefits, uh, and as we go through the planning process for them. They've been, you know, clients for about 10 or 12 years now as well. But they really need about three and a half, maybe four percent return, uh, required return to make their plan work. And when you think about that, and again, if cash is paying you point something and bonds aren't paying you that much more, you should be able to then um think through that, hey, um <laughs> they certainly uh have a higher required return than, you know, what a cash or high quality investment is going to likely yield to them over time. So said another way, they're going to have to take some some equity market risk, some stock risk. But if you go up too high on that stock risk category and you go through that sort of stress test, what we see is they they have um, some capacity for risk. You know, So they have a certain hurdle rate that they need to make for the required return. So they can't go really below that or their plan's not going to work. They're going to have to make some changes to their lifestyle or they're going to have to get a little bit higher return, meet that goal, um, then, you know, get a higher return than what cash and bonds are going to pay for them. But if they were to be, say, 80 or 100% in stocks and you go through that stress test, what we see is they don't have that much risk capacity. That sort of portfolio could be quite detrimental. And similarly, um, where if they're too conservative, they're going to have to make some lifestyle changes. If they're too aggressive and things go wrong, they're going to have to make some lifestyle changes too. It's just, it's two sides. I don't want to say it's the same coin, but on one hand, if you're, if you're more conservative than really what you need to be, and you're not going to make that uh, required return hurdle rate over time. It's a really slow way to go broke over time. On the other hand, if you're really kind of leading in with the chin and taking too much risk and something bad happens like the tech bubble bursting 2008, you know, things along those lines where you really get a big hiccup early on when you're pulling money out from the account, you know, you're going to feel it more immediate there, but both of them are going to end up resulting in having to pull back from your goals having that lifestyle risk realized where you're just going to have to make some changes. So for John and his wife in this case, it was really kind of a sweet spot. You know, they needed to have somewhere around a third, maybe no more than two thirds of their money in stocks. And knowing that we had that and had a good diversified portfolio overall, then we could navigate these different environments. On one hand, we had the expectation that the return objective was going to be met. 
Um, their hurdle rate was going to be met. On the other hand, we weren't taking so much risk where if something bad happened and the market sold off and we got into a recession and it was bad for a few years, that they were going to have to cut back right away. Rather, we still had plenty of reserves in higher quality bonds that, yes, they weren't probably going to be doing a whole heck of a lot in terms of providing returns because interest rates are low. But nonetheless, they were there for preservation. They were there for diversification and gave us some higher quality assets that we could pull from if the stock market sold off a good bit. So where Jane was really could be as conservative or as aggressive as she wanted to be based on her risk capacity, but she really didn't feel comfortable, you know, from an attitudinal standpoint, you know, John and his wife, they were comfortable with risk um, and and were actually asking about increasing the risk. But when I walked them through their financial plan and just showed them their risk capacity and, and really if, hey, you can meet your goals, but if we go more up the risk spectrum and things don't work out that well, for whatever reason, whether it's a pandemic, you know, hopefully, you know, you don't have two planes flying into a building in New York City again and things along those lines. But whatever the reason, if you're taking too much risk and you have it in an inopportune time, you're going to have a similar result. We're going to have to make some cutbacks. But if we were a little bit lower on the risk spectrum, we can meet their goals. We, they can have the lifestyle that they wanted. And they thought that was a good trade-off to have. Great conversations that anybody can have with proper planning. And it just helps really set up the rest of the plan for success when you start it the right way. Uh, we talked a little bit about how Kevin and the True Wealth Designs team's planning process is a little bit different on the last episode when we were talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, again, just sort of that outside-the-box different type of approach to planning. And I think this different approach to the risk conversation, whether it be tailored as risk tolerance or approached as risk capacity and some of the other ways that you look at it, Kevin, just goes to show the uh, really in-depth nature in which you and your team look at financial plans and start planning for somebody's financial future. And so if you have questions about this, please reach out to Kevin. Uh, if you have anything on your mind that you want to go over, want to go through the full planning process, a great way to start is to go to truewealthdesign.com. Click on the Are We Right For You button and you can schedule a 15-minute call with an experienced financial advisor on the True Wealth team. It's very easy to do that. Again, truewealthdesign.com and click on the Are We Right For You button. Or if you like the old-fashioned way, you can pick up the phone and call 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855-893-7526. Check the show notes or the description of today's program for that contact information and links to relevant info if you need it. Hey, Walter, one thing, yeah. uh, give a bit of a, uh, I wouldn't say a warning, but um, pull back the uh, the curtains a bit here. Oh, so sure. there's yes. um, one of the things become more prevalent over the last several years are there's different software programs that um, are using these risk questionnaires. Advisors are using, they're also just kind of freely available online. Most of them are not, <laughs> are not I, I wouldn't say they're not well constructed, but they don't meet the statistical um, requirements of being valid, of being reliable, of uh, those sorts of psychometric tests that I talked about. Uh, on one hand, you have a lot of financial advisors using these, um, asking, you know, hey, what's your risk score? You know, stress test your portfolio. And it's really more of a sales and marketing tool. And it, again, the way that we talked about it today, again, this is the way that we've done it, but um, in my opinion, but hey, it's my show. Um, it, it really starts with that plan. You have to have a well-constructed financial plan. And if a lot of advisors aren't doing a well-constructed financial plan. It's just kind of a garbage in, garbage out process. Then it really doesn't matter 
what your quote unquote risk score or something like that is. Um, a lot of these tests are, again, there's kind of like a, a technology revolution that's going on, not just in, in our industry, they call it FinTech, but in so many different in- industries, whether it's Tesla, Uber, you name it. Uh, so we're all aware of that. But I've seen a lot of these risk softwares that are out there and they may look nice. They may have cool graphics. They may make it easy, but they generally aren't effective. So it's just like anything, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than maybe what it seems up front. Um, you know, it's not a bad starting point to do some of these, but the best way, again, in my view, and this is why we've kind of you know, evolved here. And it's the same thing that I learned on my continuing education class yesterday. It starts with the financial plan. It starts with, you know, who you are and measuring your required return and risk capacity, and then getting into these other aspects of risk. Make sure you're doing it the right way. And uh, again, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Kevin to talk a little bit more about this. Again, you can go to truewealthdesign.com, click the Are We Right For You button. Best way to start. Kevin, thanks for the help and the conversation today. Enjoyed it. Always appreciate it, Walter. Thank you. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Everybody, thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you soon right back here on Retire Smarter. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.